Welcome to episode 24 of the Camerosity Podcast, the fastest growing open source film photography podcast in the world. I am your host, Mike Ekman, and here for the second time, we are recording at a special time, which is more friendly for our European listeners. To accomplish this feat, it is 2 p.m. here at the Mike Ekman headquarters, but it is a very not friendly 5 a.m. in Sydney, Australia, where hopefully Theo has a very large pot of coffee by his side. How is it going there, Theo? I do have a large pot of coffee right next to me, and uh, you know when they say getting up early is for the birds? Well, I don't think the birds are even up at this point. Speaking of coffee, from the corporate headquarters of Volta Coffee in Gainesville, Florida, Mr. Anthony Rue, do you have any caffeinated tips for Theo, Anthony? Drink more espresso. <laughs> and finally, from Yellow Springs, Ohio, a man whose gas influence spans all time zones, Mr. Paul Reibel. Have you sold anything yet today, Paul? Yes, yes. As a matter of fact, I have. I'm uh, I'm just having my my afternoon coffee, and then I'll count my money. It is eight o'clock in the evening in London right now, so we are looking forward to a new selection of listeners to talk to. It looks like we have some people in the waiting room already, so let's let them in. All right. We got some listeners in. I see some returning faces. I see Nick Lyle. I see Larry Effler. Mark Faulkner's back. I do see a few other people I recognize from Canny Cameras, Alan Duncan. Hey, Alan, how you doing? Not too bad, Mike. Can you hear me all right this time? Yes, you sound great. Good, good. Alan was on our first Euro show we recorded right after Christmas, so it's always uh, a pleasure to see you back, Alan. You and I have been uh, blogger chatting for, for quite a number of years, so it's always exciting to see what kind of things you come up with. I see John Michael Mendiza. Did I say that correctly? Yeah, Mendiza. Mendiza. How are you doing, John? Good. How are you guys doing? Where are you, good. Where, where are you calling from? I'm in Germany. Germany. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. So it's uh, what, nine o'clock for you, right? Yeah, just past nine o'clock. Excellent. All right. That's awesome to see. C. Tilson. I don't see a first name or a face. So hello there. Hello. How are you doing? How are you doing? You want to introduce yourself? Uh, I'm, I'm Callum. I've been getting into repairing cameras recently, so I've stumbled across your podcast a couple of months ago, and I saw you were—you uh, know—you were opening opening the session to a, a time that's suitable for me in the UK. So I thought I'd come and take a look, see what's going on. So I'm excited to be here. James Allen's back. How you doing, James? Doing good. Thank you. All right, and Nick, how you doing, Nick? It's been a couple episodes since we've seen you on the show. Yeah, I like to give you a break every now and again. Yeah, yeah. We get the Nick experience once once every other month or so. Nick loves the large format cameras, so he must have been pretty disappointed to miss our large format Polaroid discussion last week. Did you get a chance to listen to that episode? I have not gotten that one yet, but I have. Uh, I'm almost all caught up on everything else. Uh, well, welcome everybody. It's good to see some faces that are, are new. You know, we like to have different discussions here because you just never know what what kinds of things we're going to cover. I don't have anything new to share from the beginning, but I just thought maybe I'd start off with Alan because Alan is his motto for his site is he reviews the crappy cameras so that we don't have to. So have you had any interesting cameras recently? One or two. I, I, one guess or two. I, I might want to open this up to everyone else. I, I have with me two examples, one of which is actually worse than the other, of what I think is the worst production SLR ever made. Uh, and I just wondered if anybody has something that they would probably put in that camp as well. Well, you know, I'm going to say Miranda, but I'm sure that's not it. I have a focal brand. No, no, this will be a surprise in this. This is one of the most legendary camera brands in existence. Oh, is it the Nikon that Paul hated? Slightly down the list from this one. This is worse than the Nikon that Paul hated. The Olympus OM-101. Well, it's so bad he's left the room, I can tell. It's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> 
OM101. I don't think I've heard of that one. The OM101 is the one of these pointless cameras that's developed from... Well, you must have heard of the OM707, Olympus's legendary failed autofocus, arguably the, Canon, the camera that ruined Olympus's SLR business. No, but I, I feel like I should. And they decided to make a manual focus version because the Olympus autofocus lens is you can't manually focus. There is no dial to control these things. So we have here a camera to focus. You need to press buttons. You know, it's a dial on the back. And literally, I'll show you that in action. Dials around there to move the lens to focus. You turn the dial back and forth. So it's a manual focus body that uses autofocus it, lenses. It can use the, the the relatively rare Olympus autofocus lenses, of which there's only a few. They even made some okay. what, what are called power focus lenses, which are manual only, not autofocus, purely for this camera. Yeah. So so normal manual lenses, can you actually manually focus? You can lens? mount, and it's saving graces. You can mount on a standard OM lens because it is the OM mount. So it sounds like it's very similar to the Canon EFM, right? You know, it's it's still being sold alongside the OM. Would it be the OM three at that point? Because it's about eighty seven, I think this was launched. That's the same time that Canon did that EFM, which was an EOS body with the EOS lenses, but it doesn't have autofocus at all. It's completely yeah, manual. no, no. And I mean, that's one of my that, that again is on the list, but at least it does what it delivers, and you can yeah, use it. That's on top a weird. Of that, this is the worst of the two. I have this is this can only be shot in fully automatic you have yeah. no control of exposure there's no exposure lock there is a backlight button which is about the only control you have and that that's it literally that's the only control they did make a, a little add-on thing and this is another body now with the zoom lens which you clip this onto the side of the camera i don't know if you can see it but there are this little clip on i think it's it i can't remember the name of it but it's uh, this device that you bolt onto the side of the camera and it connects electronically it has two dials one for aperture and one for shutter speed that's got to be one of the dumbest things that any camera company did olympus did that with the om10 where you had to buy a clip-on thingy shoved into the side to enable manual control. So to hear that they did that more than once is just shocking to me. The OM10 has that little barnacle. Actually, it's on the front. Um, on the front, the yeah. To the left. Uh, and it's extremely annoying. I got rid of that camera. I don't know with the OM10 if you have to, on this camera, um, it depends on your lens aperture to where you set the aperture. So there's not even a standard line to align with. I don't know if that's the same on the OM10, but it has to be one of the worst concepts of uh, that's ever been developed. I don't know how people feel if they've got something that's worse. I appreciate what you say about the Mirandas, but I think that's more reliability than uh, anything else with the mic. Yeah, that's true. That's true. These are certainly uh, the dumbest concepts. And you kind of can let Olympus off with the, the 707 because they were just experimenting with autofocus and went badly. And, you know, lots of other people in the 1980s were doing the same. But to follow it up with this camera is just absolutely lean. All right, while we were talking about that, we had two more people jump in. Bill Smith is back. Hey, Bill. Hey, how's it going? All right. And Wayne. Wayne Schleppers? Did I say Schleppers. that right? Schleppers? Welcome, Wayne. He's muted. Man, a few words. <laughs> So, Alan, as, as long as we were talking about crappy cameras, I dusted off my Lomo Super Sampler this last weekend after having not shot it for 10 years. And it is possibly the worst camera I have ever picked up in my life. Yeah, it was the camera that had four vertical slot uh, lens, four lenses shooting vertical where it shot each lens like a quarter of a second apart. 
and advance the film it had a ring with a pull string on it and you had to pull it like a like a talking doll and and that advanced the film and of course everything breaks on it which i guess it gives you unintentional like art because half of the time one of the lenses sticks open and the other time one will always be like a half second exposure and the others will be like a tenth of a second so it, it's very impressionistic let's say and i was able to get all of, of seven shots out of a world of 24 but yeah worst camera i've ever picked up so you pull a string to advance the film yeah, and crack the yeah shutter? It's, it's, it's like it's like a, it's like a talking doll where it's got yeah. a string with a loop on the end and you Kodak did that with some of their Instamatic cameras where they have like a rip cord in the bottom, similar like to what you're describing. You pull that was this a thing winder. out. It would wind it when you pull that out. Yeah. This is this is great that Anthony brought this up because now he can post some of the pictures from uh, from the Lomo <laughs> camera on, uh, on the Camerosity website uh, uh, sometime later today or tomorrow. So we can we can all enjoy his uh, his artistic uh, experience with with this camera it, it, it's very random it has no viewfinder you sort of point it in the general direction but because each of the four images is a vertical panorama uh, as long as you're more or less pointed in the right direction you'll get something in each lens um i saw some of the examples that you actually showed us um anthony but it seems to me that being such a thin vertical panorama it actually tends to miss the subject on half the frames through yeah i think that's by design <laughs> so is, is it shooting like the same place um like the same frame four times at different times or is it like four different slices also at different times they're more or less pointed at the same exact spot like okay there, there's some imaginary focal point about 15 feet in front of the camera so it's like a really really shitty version of the nimslow would you say even shittier but i mean it's the same concept <laughs> though they're pointing at the yes. supposedly same focus so if in theory if it worked you could do one of those like animated gifs you yes. know where if you in theory of course and it does have two speeds one where it shoots uh, all four frames over about a second and a half and another where it shoots all four frames over over about a quarter of a second that sounds like those golf cameras yeah. they were you know intended to analyze a golf swing or something like that except they probably work yeah well the japanese ones did work yeah yeah this one this one it's it's kind of fun to actually you know fire it without filming it because you can see that about half the time the shutters fire out of order and some of them will just stick open so that when you advance the film, it exposes all of the film that you just shot, plus the next frame that you've wound in. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a piece of work. A bad idea, execute poorly. Yes. <laughs> Lomography launched a later version which works on clockwork, which doesn't go round in the same way, but you get a little, it's on a single 35 millimeter frame and it takes four individual images, two on the top, two in the bottom, which work on the same basis, but has one of the shoddiest lenses in the business in front of it as well. So you end up with really washed out. I mean, I'm a fan of plastic lens cameras, but it's a pretty awful beast. And I'm well aware of the, the original sampler for its uh, not wonderness. So they also have a spinner now, I think, is that right? something that takes 360 panoramas using the same principle yep. so how does that work it's got is it like a ball or a cube or something that that points in different it directions? looks like a stick a stake that you ram in the ground and you pull it just in the same way that we were hearing the last one described uh, there's a string you pull out and it spins round. um i mean <laughs> i think it works better if you have close subjects with a background from the images i've seen of it um and it 
the, the, you can vary the strength of the pool to give it a different effect. Um, but you're basically shooting about five, six frames each shot. That sounds like it could be fun to, you know, run around behind it and get yourself in three or four of the frames as it's going around in a circle. I think people do that. I think that's one of these these inevitable challenges. It's like a really, really rudimentary circuit camera, kind of. Or, or a budget round shot. Yeah, interesting. Just crazy how many, like, Way, new ways to do the same thing people come up with with some of these bizarre i mean i yeah the whole lamography whatever you know the, the brand you know they do some really cool things they do some you know very curious things but i guess i gotta give them credit for trying new things you know there could just be that one guy that sees that gimmicky camera and goes that's super cool uh and you gotta you know hope that maybe it's like a gateway into something better but uh, it, you, one of you guys had, had asked if I had ever reviewed any of the Lomography cameras. And although I do have one of the fish eyes somewhere, I don't even remember where I put it, but I, I really haven't. Cause I, I don't, I don't know what I would say about them, you know, but it, it sounds like there's some really interesting ones that could be like, a, a it, you know, maybe like a five Lomography cameras that if you have absolutely nothing better to do and a lot of money in your pocket, burning a hole that you could consider. I'm actually really curious about the LCA 120. Where they they took the, the the Lomo LCA and scaled it up to being a medium medium format camera with a very wide angle lens, and uh, I've actually I've I've liked the shots that I've seen off of it, but you know new I mean it's nice to support a company that's making new cameras, uh, but it's a hard time I have uh, justify oh there it is right there justifying the I think they're five hundred and fifty dollars or off the store right now. Yeah, a friend of mine picked one up ages ago. She loves it. The images are fantastic. It's very plasticky, I have to be honest with you. But, uh, I mean, this bit falls out. I don't think it's meant to do that. Um, but actually, it, the images it takes are really good. The lens is good. Um, and arguably, it's one of the best, you know, I, there's nothing else like it on the market today. I mean, it has to be said, it's uh, it does what it says on the tin and it works well enough. I do find well, mine's initially skipped frames and that, that seems to be a recurrent issue with them. The, the skip frames, you have to really make sure you're loading tight on this, but um, metering's pretty accurate and you do get that sort of classic Lomo effect of the soft vignette and softening to the edges that the original LCA did, but it's a, it's a lovely camera. It's not cheap, but um, I think I paid about just under 300 pounds which about 289 there was a deal on some money off when i picked this up um i wouldn't buy the red leather one i'd just get the plain black because it's just scuffs like nobody's business you probably can't see it but it's an absolute it's an absolute joy using it uh it differs it has a sort of slide down mechanism to open it up rather than the uh sliding bezel underneath that's one of the the features but it's, it's it's a joy of a camera what's the what's the lens on that what's is it like a 24 oh god you're gonna you can ask me that one um i think is it a i think it's a 35 or a 40 it's not as it's proportional wideness compared to the uh, the original so I, I i think that would work out about 22 yeah. 35 millimeter point of view wouldn't it but i'd be lying to tell you just off the top of my head it wasn't wasn't something i thought we were going to talk about today but <laughs> i do have one so james allen sent a link to the spinner to come back to that and all right i'm sold that this thing looks kind of neat uh they have some sample images here of people holding it above their head and it kind of spinning around capturing this ridiculously wide sprockets are visible but then there's another one where they're in a room and it looks like four different people stood 
you know, north, south, east, and west of the camera and had the lens spin around and you see four separate people on this really long panorama. So that, that looks, it's a gimmick for sure. But, uh, that, that, that's definitely something I've never seen before. Is that like a slit that's moving around then? Must be something I mean, like if you that. look at, just go to Lomography's site and search for Spinner 360. Uh, it's in the show notes too. I don't know if you guys can see that, but it's it's basically like a swing lens camera with a yeah, slot. Yeah, but it spins completely though, right. all the way around. 360. Yeah. yeah. Oh wait, this thing's only fifty dollars. It's fifty bucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's sold out, but fifty dollars. Right. All right. So all there's right. An, well, another version of a, of that kind of weird effect that I have a contraption that has been designed to fit various medium format lenses and put them in front of a smaller format camera. And it, it's just a stitching device, but because the lens holds still and you slide the camera incrementally left to right and up and down, you can cover a big medium format size area, take eight up to eight frames and or make a panorama that's long and narrow and stitch them together afterward. And you could do this with film as long as you digitize it and then stitch it in Photoshop. And you can also do it with, uh, you know, APS-C digital cameras. But what you can, you can do a similar thing where you can, for instance, what I've done is take a whole bunch of photographs and each time I put the uh, image on a timer and uh, so I could appear in the image, you know, five or six times if I want to in the same image. Um, it's kind of fun. There's also things you can do. I mean, it gives you a high resolution image if the uh, subject is staying relatively still or if the things that are moving don't make it from one frame to the next. <laughs> while wow. you're shooting but it's a lot of fun to play with and you can i have one that's set up for mamiya 645 lenses which is a big part of my medium format system uh, so i have adapters for other lenses uh, that have longer flange back distances and it means you can try a lot of different lenses with it and uh, get really high resolution wide angle images from it it's fun that's crazy yeah, if I had a hard time wrapping my head around a two foot tall Polaroid image, but some of these things you're describing here are just. My sister ran one of those giant Polaroids uh, for the Boston Museum of Art for a, a while. Um, you know, that basically she was the tech who operated the camera. So I have I've had a lot of stories from her. This was a long time ago, back in the uh, early 80s, I think, when it first really got going. I've got one of the images that she made with it. And it's wonderful. I want to know what beer Wayne is drinking because whatever it is, it looks very good. That's from Belgium. It's Orval. Oh yes, yes, we actually get that in Florida. Ah. Is it a is it a uh, like a, a Belgian white or? Oh, it's one Trappist ales. Ooh. Okay. And you may be familiar with West West Mall and and Chime. I mean, no. I am from Belgium, so <laughs> <laughs> I have to. It's lunchtime on a work day here, so. Um, nothing for me. <laughs> yeah, half of us are drinking coffee, half of us are drinking, well, not half, but the other half have the opportunity to drink beer. Kind of wish I had a beer now. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's far from the worst camera ever made, but, you know, we were, we've been talking a couple episodes ago about Ukrainian cameras, and I talked about the Fed 2. Uh, I've, I've really liked that one. I think that's a, a fantastic shooter, but I wanted to look at another Fed. Uh, so I went on the complete other end of the spectrum. And this ties into a question that we had in the last episode about Soviet cameras that were made to be fixed. Like, you know, they rolled out of the factory broken with the intent of, you know, fixed, uh, or I'm sorry, being serviced by a, a serviceman. So I have um, a Fed 5C, which this would have been the very, very last of the interchangeable lens fed cameras this one actually works fine uh, at least as good as a 1980s fed camera 
can. And I was actually working on, you know, a forthcoming review earlier. And, you know, I'm trying to like be like not overly gushing, but on the other hand, not overly critical of it. But it, it's so difficult when you have these cameras that are just clearly, you can tell the quality control is just garbage. I mean, you look at the, the base plate and there's just machining marks all over the place. Like I could imagine some child sitting in the orphanage with like a hammer, you know, pounding, pounding the bottom plate to fit, you know, it, it doesn't even have a, for rewinding, it's got this tiny serrated metal six millimeter in diameter knob that tears your fingers apart when you rewind the camera it's got an uncoupled meter the shutter speed dial you know it's it's like the old style range finders that spins as as the shutter fires which you know was fine for the 50s but you know this camera is made in the 80s and the the disc that has the shutter speed numbers on it it's like painted with like crayons i think i mean it's it's very 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 blurry low quality like silk screening so you know when you break down a camera to its most fundamental yes it works right it, it it accepts like a thread mount lenses uh you know assuming the shutter fires there's really no reason why a camera like this couldn't take good pictures but uh it, it is difficult to get too excited about some of these later one of the later range finders. So I won't put it in the same market as some of the worst cameras ever made, but uh, this is definitely a, a poor example of a style of camera that at one time was much better. I'll, I'll review stuff that uh, maybe I don't love, but you know, hey, for the right person, it, it could be a good camera to shoot. Difficult to know with Fed at that point because their focus had maybe moved on to the uh, Konica C35 mark. Yeah. The uh, Micron Mark II. And then the, I think there were two Fed 35s, weren't, weren't there? Um, there was a Fed 50, which the was Fed actually. 50, well, no, the Fed 50 is a viewfinder, which I absolutely love. But there are two relatively rare, and I think they're Fed 35s. Uh, but they are basically the the Micron and slightly newer clothing that were okay. produced in about nineteen in the nineteen eighties, and I think they were still in production up just into the start of the nineties. I, I had the Micron too. I haven't had the later thirty five. Those are half frame, right? No, no, they're they're full frame, unlike the uh, the original Micron, which is just a, a very nice copy of the Konica Eye. But uh, okay. which I have as well i mean it's not optically as good as the konica eye but it's a very interesting camera the micron it's very you know pretty much copied it piece for piece um as is fairly typical for the that era but um but the micron 2 and the uh, the other ones are just they're very much just clones of konica c35s mm -hmm. or is that the s2 auto i think or s3 auto to you guys uh the s3 was much smaller it was the I, more I think, yeah because we, we tend to talk about the c the Konica C35, I think, is what we would be the S3 Auto. Yeah, if that Those makes a tiny. Bit more sense. I thought they were half frame, though. Is there, are there different versions of them? or The the, the original Micron is, uh, I'll try and lug it out in a minute or two. So it, it looks like the Konica Eye. I'll have a rummage in a minute and I'll hopefully pop back up with a, with both that, the Konica Eye and it. Uh, and it is a half frame. It's, it's nice. It's got an in viewfinder. Uh, it's its own focus so as an in yeah i've got i've got a micron as well yeah same what you're holding but the micron 2 is a is is a straightforward konica s3 c35 whatever you want to call it um like miniature compact rangefinder standard standard frame format and as i say there are two 
I think they're called third 35s, but I might be wrong about that. That's followed on from that, uh, that were, were basically the same camera, but more plastic. So which would you, let's, let's say you were to make a recommendation of one of the later feds, would you go with the Micron or the 50? You said you really like the fed 50. The fed 50 is fun. I mean, it is the mutant love child of an LCA and, uh, an Olympus trip, um, which after they'd both got very drunk at a dubious nightclub, (laughs) um, it's one of the weirdest but fantastic cameras. Um, it, you know, it's very, very bling looking at it. It's got ludicrously plastic lettering on the front. It's got a Cyclops uh, selenium cell. And this is a camera that's being produced in the ni- late 1970s into the 1980s when selenium cells had died out elsewhere. But it also has that um, viewfinder like the LC, it's got a viewfinder for its zone focus um, indicator um, and has a swinging needle to tell you your shutter position, uh, your shutter speeds as well, how accurate that is. Never entirely sure the metering works in these things very well and I've taken some lovely shots in it and equally I've had some duff ones, but it's uh, it's a bit of fun if you get a working one. Has anybody ever heard or seen a source for replacement selenium cells? I mean, it's it's essentially just a piece of like plastic or glass that's coated, right? I mean, I like the meters die, but I, I I feel like that that should be something that can be replaceable. Yet I don't know of any place that sells replacement meters. Well, no, you you uh, society for the the people that used to repair Weston meters would they recoded the selenium strip? Okay, I don't know who's doing it anymore, but it's it's certainly possible to do it. I mean, it was just a it was just a question of reactivating the material. Yeah. That, that uh, was the, uh, the the source. I can't remember now, but there were there were a number of people in the U.S. that were doing it. I think I've seen a few people on eBay offer it as well. Do they really? Because mm. I mean, you can get replacement beam splitters. You can get replacement TLR mirrors. You know, people are cutting those. Martin Selig does the the TLR mirrors. You see him a lot of times on eBay. But you know, he participates in many of the Facebook groups and will sell you a TLR mirror front, you know, front surface or you know, medium format SLRs. He works in two. You know, they'll cut them to any shape. You can get beam splitters of any shape and size. I'm just I'm surprised there's not more places selling co- recoded. You know, I mean, obviously you would have to provide the size, but like I've taken apart um, a Zeiss Contessa 35 and actually gotten the selenium cell out and it's just like a rectangle. You know, I mean, you have an electrical connection on either side and it, I mean, and believe me, I don't understand the science behind it. So maybe I'm talking on my ass here, but it doesn't seem like it would be that hard to do yet. That seems to be like something you don't really encounter that often. It may be a hazardous material. I'm not sure selenium, that could be the reason why you don't see it done, but in the past, it was certainly Sekonic studio deluxe meters were very repairable when the cells died, you know, on some of the cameras like the Konica's and the Yashica's that use the selenium cells, it probably wasn't worth it. You know, for more expensive light meters, there were, there were a number of places that could repair the cells on those. It could be just lack of demand now too. I mean, how many selenium cell replacements would be a profitable business? Let's find out. Hey, Google, is selenium toxic? On the website ncbi.nlm.nih.gov, they say selenium toxicity can occur with acute or chronic ingestion of excess selenium. Symptoms of selenium toxicity include nausea, vomiting, nail discoloration, brittleness, and loss, hair loss, fatigue, irritability, and foul breath odor, often described as garlic breath. Selenium is found in the environment in soil. Okay, so don't People eat it. also sometimes ask it. me, is selenium harmful? Well, that was more than we really wanted to know, but that's... <laughs> <Yeah>. uh... <laughs> 
Google's very chatty today. So I do remember reading some random website where a fellow replaced the selenium cells with just uh, solar cells. He cut them to the right size and put the right right number of resistors and capacitors in line. And he said it worked. It looked like a lot of trouble and something I would never do. But uh, it was some random website I read a couple okay. of years ago. Because all you're trying to, all you need to do is generate a, a current with light. So right. you get a cheap solar cell from a calculator. But I imagine it has to be calibrated though, too. I mean, you can't just have random currents. Yeah, like, that's what all the capacitors and, and yeah, resistors okay. are for. <laughs> so I, th- I think between giving you bad breath and mildly toxic, uh, having to have the correct capacitors, maybe that answers my question of why there is not a huge market for replacement selenium cells. All right, hey, now I know. Well, and probably just the the ease of sticking a little uh, detachable meter on, like something like the Raveni meters yeah. or something like that. It just is so much easier and yeah. probably more cost effective. And you can use it on multiple cameras. So that's true. Is it really worth it to get that particular meter working ish on that particular camera? John, do you have a do you have the Raveni meter? Then is that what you use? I've got the spot meter uh, from ah. Raveni, but I don't have is that. A the one where you have to look through real, the real tiny hole in the back. Um, no, it's got a pretty big, it's got a big lens on the front and okay. you hold it up and you just look through it and you have to keep both, both eyes open. And um, so like in your brain, it'll, it'll kind of overlay the little target um, at what you're looking at. I gotcha. I'm super left eye dominant. So I actually, it makes a big difference which eye I use um, when I'm looking through the meter, but it's pretty cool as a little spot meter and it's super compact. I can grab and it's it. It's pretty all. accurate. Yeah. Yeah, compared to compared That's to cool. you know the the meters in my my digital cameras and stuff, it's fine. That's based on some old viewfinders that you could get from Voigtlander, isn't it? Where they had the same sort of thing where you'd look through one eye and it would. And you're looking through something that's not, you know, glass or looking, you know, through it. You're just you're looking at it and it's giving you the frame lines. And when you have both eyes open, your brain sort of brings the frame lines into in, into the picture. Yeah, the, the lens in it basically tricks your eye into thinking you're looking further away than you are. So that your, your eyes are basically oh. relaxed and looking at infinity, but you don't actually look through the meter. Um, you're just seeing a little LED display in the meter because your your eyes are both you know focused at infinity basically or whatever you're looking at. It's close enough, and your brain goes, "Well, I'm looking at that rock over there, and for some reason there's this glowing circle around it." So it's a clever system, and um, it works really well. And the it's it's light, you know, it's light and it's tiny. It's you know, it's like a film canister and a half. So you can really just throw it in your pocket and take it around with you if you. If you're into that kind of thing, is anyone else uh, using that Lomography four by five back for uh, Instax mini or Instax wide film? Anyone else playing with that? Well, <clears throat> the biggest problem I have with it uh, is that it's very hard to nail exposure. Like the <laughs> it's supposed to be the thing you use to test the exposure, but it's, it's such a tiny. It's worse than slide film. It's so narrow, and it just I just waste a lot of film trying to trying to get a usable exposure. Yeah. Instax is awful. It's got um, its latitude is worse than slide by by some margin. So, I've shot a few Instax models. There, I mean, it worked. Fuji film obviously sell them geared for parties. You take a flash, the exposure is perfectly controlled. Um, but when you take them outside, I mean, I don't don't ever point it at the sun. You'll just end up with a black hole on your. Uh, your shot it's it's awful for that it can't cope with those differentials and and when you look at the gradients across a complex scene it's they're they're not great um yeah it is one of those ones i i've shot a lot of instax many using the um the nonce 
35, uh, the SLR that takes the 35 millimeter camera lenses. Um, and it, it's really hard to know the exposure even with the metering on that. A few weeks ago, I stopped in and visited my friend Ethan Moses, and he gave me one of his Rex cameras, which takes Mamiya press lenses, and it mounts the lamography back on the, on the other side of it. He also has a really nice ground glass for it, which is also a two by three graph lock back. So you can, on the same camera, you can shoot roll film. Um, I'm really frustrated with the actual Instax film. It's uh, Occasionally I get something I really like, and so it lures me to then waste a lot of money taking more bad pictures. Yeah. So I'm trying to narrow it down and find out what it's good for. And I guess, yeah, pointing away from the sun, not too much dynamic range, and I think a spot meter maybe <laughs> to figure out where to start. Yeah, I had that same experience even with the SX-70. You know, as, as much as I wanted to love that camera, just the current state of instant film is just frustrating between latitude, color saturation. I mean, like you said, I'll see the occasional image that someone posts, or maybe you're lucky enough to make one your own that, wow, that looks pretty good. Maybe I could figure out a way to make them all look like that, but it just never seems to be. And you end up spending a lot of money on it. Wayne, what's your results like with the method you're using in terms of the, the exposure? And yeah, it's what has been said, the, ex the latitude is terrible. I've I don't think his internet's fast enough. Wayne breaking up. Yeah, yeah. possibly. Sounds like he's not that happy with it, is my guess. Nah. <laughs> nah. <laughs> just a step back, one a half a step. Wayne just sent a really cool link uh, to a Reddit analog community guy that tells you how to reionize a selenium cell meter and the recipe that you use to... Uh, to do that, maybe we could post that on the, the podcast uh, yeah. website. And with, with a disclaimer that don't try this at home, kids, uh, we are not responsible if you turn purple or get bad breath. Read, I have it up on my screen too, Paul. Read, read the eight materials. What are some of the ingredients? <laughs> the eight materials are Coca-Cola, ketchup, vinegar, baking soda, <laughs> uh, a small plastic tray, Q-tips, and a pair of cheap latex gloves. So I think I would get good gloves if I were using that stuff. Yeah. Well, it's Coca-Cola. Like what? <laughs> Pepsi will not work. It has to be Coca-Cola and it doesn't say uh, diet or regular. So yeah, there's no Mentos. But anyway, I thought that was very cool. It was a very, very cool find. And thanks for sending that to us. Yeah. Thanks, Wayne. I don't know that I'll try it, but uh, maybe somebody will. <laughs> there are a few fairly high end um, in stacks models um obviously mint are famous for the rangefinder this is the nonce which is currently using instax many they're coming out with one using the instax square which is i think the only fully functional slr now in production um yeah it's i mean again it's a bit it's expensive and plasticky but it actually does what it says in the tin but the difficulty exactly as you were saying earlier about the latitude just makes it you know, really interesting camera to shoot and quite a challenge. Um, and what camera is that again, Alan? That's the nonce. The nonce, okay. Yeah, that's the uh, that's the Mark II model of the original. The SL Mark II. Eases M42 lenses? This, yeah, I mean, this, it uses, it has a Canon EF mount. So at the moment, there's an adapter on the back end of this old Pentacon M42. And it goes on to the, the mount here. The Mark II differs. There's technical things. It's got a better battery, an inbuilt one, which is a curse. It's equally good and bad in its own ways. Uh, and they put on a format extender, which the original camera heavily vignetted. 
because if you think about the size of the frame you're projecting on at the back end, it's, you're going to get vignetting and effects because you're going to you, you're you're asking an Instax Mini is I think is it six point two by four point four centimeters. So if you compare that to a thirty five millimeter frame, obviously you're going to get issues. This obviously adds an optical layer in. Which, if I can show you, there's a lens in that, which is designed obviously to adjust things out. You lose a little bit of lens quality, but it's it's not awful. Um, and you can mount any lens you want via the the EF, any an EF adapter. So I've shot this with uh, Nikon Pentax key mount as well as the standard screw forty twos. And yeah, it's it's all right, but it's exactly what you were saying earlier. Just it's it's a really difficult camera to shoot. The shutter speed is also maximal, 200, uh, 1 250th. When you're using an 800 ISO film, you're having such a slow shutter speed is an absolute nightmare. You have to be putting an ND filter on and because it's stopped down viewfinding, it's a bit of a nightmare from that side of things. So it's not perfect. It's not perfect. Um, is it a leaf shutter? Yes, it has a leaf shutter. Um, okay. I don't know if I can show you that in operation. Oh, okay. It's got a weird caulking mechanism. So Alan's holding up what this thing looks like. I mean, you could just Google it, but it, it looks like a pretty normal looking SLR, but it fits the Instax mini film in the back. The whole pack, right? Like you get all the image. You don't have to load one at a time, right? Yeah, yeah. Just it's a standard Instax loader. Okay. Um, but I mean, from a distance, it just looks like a slightly larger SLR, but it has yeah, the, yeah. the I Canon mean, it's, EF. It's, I mean, if I hold it up against the horrendous Olympus, you just get an idea of the scale. I mean, it's smaller than a medium format SLR like a KF6, but um, but it's okay. a big, bit of a chunky beast. It's quite wide as well, if you can see it. Yeah, it's pretty thick. Is it autofocus? No, no, no. It's man no. manual focus. The, the lens mount is completely passive, okay. and it's got external metering as well, so you're not actually doing uh, through the lens metering. So there's a, there's a little external CDS cell or some form of metering cell there which displays up there where you can match it off your shot okay uh, so it at least gives you some suggestion then gives you a suggestion and it's broadly all right yeah that reminds me that one thing that's nice about the mamiya press mount is that i'm using the 127 mamiya press lens and that stops down to f64 so you can really get a handle on the 800 speed with that and it's also the the lens they used on one of the two lenses that they used on one of the polaroids um the there, the, there was a Mamiya press that was modified to be one of Polaroid's cameras back in the day. The 127 was actually the lens that Mamiya made to use with Polaroid film. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah, yeah. in Japan, they, we in this country, we got them usually with 100 millimeter 3.5, but in Japan, they were almost always sold with the 127. It's a great lens. I really yeah, it like is. it. It's, yeah. a, it's a terrific lens. So I think my solution is going to be to use this film in on gray days <laughs> with very low dynamic range. That might be the answer. So I was going to say, have we wandered into into the wandered into the reason why Fuji's never released a more capable camera for Instax? Because there's been an outcry for a lot of people saying, "Oh, why why doesn't Fuji just release something that's better, that with more manual controls, etc." It's because maybe they know that Instax has got such a narrow latitude that it would just basically end up being something people will write badly about it and complain about it. It's got pretty good resolution, I think, though. So they could at least put a better lens on it, couldn't they? Yeah, I think I use, I've use i used it with better lenses. And when you finally get the exposure right, the better lens really does help. 
Um, but Fuji makes good lenses. I wouldn't assume that their crummy little point-and-shoot cameras have bad lenses. I think the idea is that the camera lends itself to the, the party shot with a flash, and that that's when it works the best because it's, you know, quite controlled. Uh, but I think with a good lens and, you know, taking the time to get the exposure right and not too much dynamic range and all the rest of it, it does perform better, but not enough necessarily to make someone pay a lot of money for the camera. You know, that's, that's the catch. I think in one of our earlier episodes, it might've been Cheyenne Morrison who made a comment that Fuji did not anticipate the success of Instax early on. You know, they kind of just pushed it out there sort of to fill a niche, but not realizing how much it would take off. So, I mean, on one hand, Theo, I agree. I mean, it, it seems like they should offer more of a selection, especially with Instax wide. I mean, they've only ever made like a very small handful of those cameras, but you know, you're, you're basically making instant prints almost like six by nine, you know? So I think of all the like cool, you know, Kodak monitors or, or medalists or whatever, that in theory, if you could have an image that big, but an instant could be really, really neat, but there's just a shockingly small selection out there. So I have to wonder if they don't just keep making the film out of obligation, but for one reason or another, just don't have any interest in furthering the technology. I mean, that's at least my perception of it. I don't have any insight to that though. Looping back to, to Nick's original intro to this, which is the, the actual, the four by five back, for um, Graflock back for, for the Instax, would that be a really handy tool if you were shooting slide film to try and nail your exposure? If you can get it right with the, the Instax, then you're, you're, you're on your way there to getting slide, your slides? Yeah, I think if you can get it right with the Instax, you're home free with the slide film, <laughs> at least for exposure. The problem is that there are many situations where it doesn't work well. I think probably work best in the studio with very controlled lighting. And a lot of instant film is like that. You know, so and that's probably when it was often used. Somebody who was doing an expensive shoot in a studio and they could afford to throw away a lot of Polaroid film and just, you know, to make sure that four by five came out right or whatever. I've been waiting for uh I guess it's maybe going on two years now. So they did a Kickstarter for a uh, uh Instax back for the Hasselblad. It might actually get done at some point. And if that if it ever turns up, it'll be really fun to try that. They're going to do square and a little adapter so you can shoot mini with it too. And um, so that would be fun. I'm looking forward to trying that out in the studio with Flash and see see if that works out or not. I'm waiting for one for an RB67. Hmm. Frankenstax claims they have one, but they haven't shipped yet, I don't I'm waiting for one for my Kodak medalist. <laughs> Will it work with my tourist? There was a relaunch of the Magni back that you used to get for 35 SLRs using Polaroid film in the day um, that was relaunched using Instax film a couple of years back. I think I, I had no experience how well that worked. Um, and obviously, I think it was limited backs, mainly uh, Nikon, I think for Leica and a couple of Canon backs as well. But um, I, I don't know if anyone had any experience of using that. They weren't really Magnes. They were they were a back that just snapped onto the back of the camera. The Magni was one that used enlarging lenses and mirrors and all kinds well, of things. I think this one did as well because it looked exactly like the original Magni, okay. but it projected out the back, but it, it was going on to an Instax using an enlarging. The downside to it was you lost like six F-stops in going through all the mirrors and the enlarging lens and, and all that. So the exposure on it, it, you had to either have several megatons of flash or uh, really bright daylight to be able to get much 
meaningful information out of a picture. So, you know, we got, um, we got some people from, from Europe, uh, you know, obviously a huge number of cameras come out of Germany. So uh, excluding German cameras, does anybody have kind of a favorite UK or, you know, European, but not German camera? Um, the last time we did one of these episodes, I brought up the Perma Special. We talked about that one for a little bit, about a month or two ago, Mario Piper, one of the listeners of the show loaned me an ensign selfix 820 special which is a six by nine folding camera it's got a um coupled range finder on it or no it's uncoupled an uncoupled range finder so you have to measure your distance by using a wheel and then whatever distance it says you transfer that manually to the lens I've only ever shot really, really, really basic Ensign cameras before. Uh, so this one is very, very well built, uh, solid, heavy, nice chrome. I think he told me that Jurgen from Serto 6 CLA'd this one. Uh, if not Jurgen, somebody did because this thing's in really, really nice shape. So I've I've shot one roll of film to this thing already, but uh, this one's really pretty. But there, I know the there's not a ton of you know, what I would consider to be like higher end British cameras. I joked with the guys because it says it's an 820. So I was joking about I'm going to have to find some 820 film, but obviously that doesn't exist. But this uses both 120 and 620. So it's got the the little fork has kind of a stepped little plate that allows it to work with both size spools. Uh, that would be my my pick for favorite current British camera. That lens looks very fast. It does. It, it's physically huge, but it's only a, it's a Ross London 105 millimeter F3.8. So I mean, 3.8 is still fairly fast for medium format, but it's not huge. But it, yeah, you're right. It is. It looks very, very big. I don't understand the, the physics of light that well. But when I first saw this, I thought, wow, that's got to be like a 2.8 because I've never seen a 2.8 on a 6x9 camera before. It's, they seem to top out at 3.5. So Yeah, because I picked up a Kershaw 820 Penguin when I was in London last time, right? right there you go. The kit, and that one has a, it's a Tessar, which I believe is a F11. <laughs> and that's that's a Kershaw? We lost Mark. Mark, we lost your audio. Today's going to be the audio episode. His battery's dying. While he's trying to fix it, there's a British camera. It's a Chroma 679. It's less than a year old. Takes Mamiya back and a Mamiya lens on the front. And it's so, wow. but it's, it's, you know, Chroma cameras, one of their new ones. And it's a lot of, I like, I wanted something that would work with the, the Mamiya S-shaped roll film backs, which are beautifully made and they work as a handle as right. well. Nick, has that got the 50 on that one? No, this is the uh, 90. So what do you use for a viewfinder? Did you put an external viewfinder on it? I have a lot of different external viewfinders that I swap around depending on what lens I'm using. I have, uh, I have most of the lenses. I have everything but the really long telephoto. The 90 was a recent acquisition. It's one of the two that is retractable, and that's for a very specialized purpose on the actual Mamiya Press cameras. They have um, movable, you know, they have the rear swing and tilt, which requires the lens to be in a different position to, to focus on infinity. But I do like these S-shaped backs. Uh, it lets you get your face much closer and see through an add-on viewfinder eat more easily. With the Graflock backs, you've got this big bulbous film back in your face. So one yeah. nice thing about these Mamiya's is they work better with the uh, add-on. Anyway, yeah, I like this setup pretty well. It's very light, and you know you have to focus by 
scale, but I'm getting really used to that. It works works fine. That's cool. Speaking of uncoupled rangefinders, I uh, got this for folks who have uh, scale focus issues. Pa. Yep, that's me. <laughs> what are we looking at? <clears throat> it's a so you uh, it's a little little tiny. Oh, is it a golf? Is it a golf? Well, it's not really finder? golf. It's not only for golf because it really only goes out to about fifty feet. Which I thought that was much better for photography because in is my mind, a, anything past fifty feet. Larry, is that a Dewalt? Is that it a is Dewalt? A, it is a random Chinese brand. Uh, okay. Am I upside down? I was looking at the yeah okay small smart laser uh, yeah I was looking very at small. the walls at uh, at some of the home stores the DIY stores yeah yeah they're around twenty five or thirty dollars and they're you, you only have to look, the thing to look at is the range but fifty feet as far as definitely I mean when you get fifty feet you're at infinity anyway yeah and this is so small it's funny you're mentioning that you guys can't see this but Paul Anthony and Theo know that I'm finishing my basement where I do this recording. Uh, so behind me is the last part that hasn't been done yet. But on the other side, I've been doing framing over the past couple of weeks. And I bought one of those laser things. And I, I, it never occurred to me to think that that could have a photographic uh, use. You know, the one that I bought, I got from Amazon, random Chinese brand, don't even remember the name of it. But I think it goes up to 150 feet. But like you said, Paul, at that point, depth yeah. of field, it might as well be infinity. But um, it's actually surprisingly accurate. I mean, I did some measurements from floor to ceiling on it and I got a reading. It, it, the one I have measures in inches, but uh, I stuck a shim about one sixteenth of an inch under it and then took a second reading to see if it could detect the difference by me sticking a shim under it. And it did. So uh, it's pretty accurate. So I, I guess that it could be one alternative for a gadget. I know people who use those. The question I have is, do you did you get the safety glasses for the model to wear? You know, the issue that I have, I've got one that I've been using with, with some of my older cameras. Uh, they're fantastic for indoor use, but like outdoor in the Florida sun, they're useless. It is hard to find the dot in the sun. Yeah, I cannot, I cannot get a reading on it in the bright Florida sun. I use a measuring tape fairly often. <laughs> but outdoors, though, you could stop down the lens more and you benefit more from depth of field. So, I mean, unless you're doing like macro photography with a scale focus camera, I wouldn't think you'd need it that often, would you? Or Yeah. Well, this one gave me a reading in, in bright sunlight, but I had no idea what the where the laser was falling. So you I don't know you're pointing it at yeah. to you. So as long as we're talking about obscure uh, European non-German cameras, I you know I can't believe I've made it this many episodes and not mentioned my De Maria and Lapierre Telka three. There you go, which Bernard's is, camera. It, it's a Bernard camera. It's uh, it's a a well, actually, it wasn't from Bernard, but he's the one that talked me into getting it. It was a, a 1950s six by nine that was very much a competitor with the uh, 6x9 Super Iconta and with the uh, Bessa 2. And, uh, you know, in my friend Bernard's opinion, it was it was superior for its its uh, structural rigidity uh, and also just the, the quality of the build. It's, a, you know, it's a rangefinder 6x9. Um, and it's just like one of these weird, you know, the, 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 what there maybe three or four recognizable French brands that people would, would be able to, to name. De Maria and Lapierre had made cameras back to the 1920s and 30s. And this was like a last ditch effort to make a French camera that could compete with the highest end German cameras. And it's probably my favorite six by nine camera that I have. And just like, it's got this incredible, like just feel to the leather, every, everything about the metal, the struts, the everything about it. It just, it produces beautiful images uh what you got oh you've got the royer right my royer the telleroy that's made me think of it 
your telka. I know it's not exactly the same, but you know, this is another example of a really, really, really nice French six by nine. Yeah. It's really hard to find a telka three. Uh, I ended up getting mine from some guy down in Buenos Aires. And uh, I don't think I've ever seen one for sale from somebody in the U S and in Europe. No, they're pretty rare. They, they tend to go, they tend to start at around $600 uh, when I see them in auctions in, in, in Europe. But if you ever do see one, definitely pick it up because it's uh, uh, it's it's a real sweetheart camera. So is the rangefinder coupled? Yes, it is. Okay. Yeah, it's got like a nice rangefinder patch. It's a fraction of the size of the camera that Nick's holding up. What do you have there, Nick? Oh, is that a, a Rollup? Nope. This is my new favorite six by nine. It's a uh, it's a Horseman, Horseman. nine seventy, oh, um, and I've got a Schneider lens on it. And it turns out you don't need Horseman lenses. You can mount all kinds of lenses and they work perfectly with the cam anyway this is by far my favorite blows away any of the graphlex cameras it's beautifully made it has a, a really good viewfinder and a separate rangefinder the rangefinder is almost like a leica using it it's uh it's just a joy to use and it has tons of movements it has rear movements front movements beautifully machined you know it is pretty it's just a wonderful camera and then the the way that you set it up to use with different lenses and the, the rangefinder is the best I've ever seen. They're these really easy to replace cams and stops, infinity stops, so you can quickly change lenses and immediately use the rangefinder without screwing around. It has a rangefinder readout on the top that's extremely accurate. So when wow. you're dialing it in, you can actually make accurate measurements and then check that it's right, just without any fuss. And Will it, it takes... work with the Instax back? <laughs> no. Well, actually it would. There's, there is a very rare four by five back for these. This is a, a medium format camera. So it's not as big as it looks. It's actually quite compact when you fold so it up. So it's natively six by nine. It's natively, uh, it'll take any roll film back. Well, this one will take the Graflex backs and the Horseman okay. backs. It won't take the RB67 backs. Later models okay. would, but. Um, so it's, it's natively a sheet film camera that they make a variety of backs for. No, it's natively a roll film back camera which okay. you, you could probably, I don't even know. I mean, it, it's a graph lock. So you could use an old graph lock sheet film yeah. uh, holder if you wanted. But the beauty of this is you can use ground glass, but it's very easy to shoot with the rangefinder and just leave the film back on there. So when I, I do a lot of landscape works when the light is changing rapidly and I don't want to screw around taking things apart and putting them back together. Um, this has also got a beautiful built-in viewfinder that works up to 90 millimeter. Um, it looks full big full coverage it's really nice it's really really nice it makes all the old press cameras feel awkward and dim and clumsy and oh my god i have to have one how does it work with the different lenses though um if it's working through a rangefinder do you have to adjust the rangefinder depending yes on the but it's super easy to do that so i don't know if you can see but yeah there's a little cam here which i can pop out really quickly there's even a holder for them inside here where you carry your extra cams you just swap oh the cam and then you pop up whichever of these infinity stops you need for that lens there are, you preset them and then you just slide the, the whole thing forward to that infinity stop pop in the other cam and it's all ready to go wow beautifully adjusted there's only like seven different range uh view uh, focal lengths that work with this rangefinder but they're common it's it goes from 65 millimeter yeah. 90 100 and you know all the basic i think it's 105 all the basic ones uh that you would want uh, i don't know i if there's i've never this is my one of my very favorite kinds of camera and i've always put up with their inadequacies all of a sudden i have one where everything is 
works perfectly and wow, yeah. isn't a hassle. And I, I'm super excited. It wasn't even an ex, it wasn't expensive either. I just bought the basic camera. The cams, cams are usually missing, and you have to buy them separate. But they're on, you know, they're on eBay. Anyway, I'm, I'm in love. I, with I have this to thing. have one. I'm sorry. It is, it's very pretty. Yeah. <laughs> and it, yeah, and it, I don't know if you can see, but it has this beautiful hammered paint on it and everything. The newer models are supposedly better, but they're not as beautiful as the old. This is the second model from the '60s. So basically, they were making press cameras when everyone else quit. So they're like the state-of-the-art camera, but an old-fashioned design. It's nice. Paul, you just sold one, didn't you? I did. I had a I had an entire set with uh, three lenses and two backs and a Polaroid back. Yep. It was a 985. Yeah, that's a later model. Um, and you can buy you can actually buy sets of cams on eBay. Somebody in uh, in China, I think, is making the cam sets like ninety dollars for a set of three cams. Uh, I bought original ones for less than that. I mean, they're out there. The one thing is you want to, if you're buying one, you want to make sure you find one that has the, uh, uh, the little pop-up infinity stops because sometimes those get lost and they are hard to find. Mine came with five or six sets already in it. And it, it just, it's sort of the same idea as the Graflex cameras, but the implementation is like a thousand times better. Speaking of that, has anybody seen the, uh, the Minamata movie with uh, Johnny Depp as Gene uh, White or Gene Smith? No. It's on, you can, you can rent it. It's hard to find in a theater, but you can rent it uh, from Amazon. Uh, it's uh, Gene Smith or Johnny Depp in this movie is using a Minolta SRT camera. And I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to start stockpiling them just to uh, wait for the value to increase because all the hipsters are going to want the camera that W. Eugene Smith used at Minamata. I did that a few years ago. I grabbed two black SRT 101s and uh, I was gifted a Chrome one and I've got an early production Chrome SRT 101 with the black dial. The early black dial SRTs than Chrome, I find them a little bit nicer. Well, those were true black paint. They were not anodized. Yeah. That was that was a black paint camera. Yeah. And they're beautiful. They're highly gloss and... Uh, they brass really, really nicely. Probably nicer brassing than the Nikon's actually. Uh, I'll give a tip. I've come across many SRTs over the years. Um, that camera was in production from 1966 to 1981, so it had an incredibly long lifespan. And there were a bunch of different sub models. But if you're going to get an SRT 101, pay attention to the coupling ring around the lens mount. The earlier ones are metal. The later ones are plastic. I'll just say, go with the metal ones. And it's not just for the obvious reason that metal's stronger than plastic, but internally, a lot of other changes were made to the plastic ones too that make them very unreliable. Almost every plastic SRT I've come across has some kind of film advance problem where like you can put the film in, you wind the lever, but it feels like it's cocking, but it's actually not moving the, the take-up spool at all. Like you're just kind of advancing the film on the exact same piece of film. So they're good cameras. Uh, but if you're going to buy one to shoot one, make sure you get one that's one of the earlier ones. So you can identify it. Did you? Just, I, I might have missed what you said. Was it the lens mount that's plastic or the follower? It's not the mount itself. There's a, a coupling ring. Um, the follower I mean, that, that changes. The follower, yeah. The follower, yeah. yeah. It's the follower. Well, those things were notorious anyway. And uh, they hardly ever broke, but they would bind up. And it was a string inside that, uh, that, would, that would catch and not return sometimes. And it was a fairly easy fix to take off the lens mount and just uh, sort of straighten it out a little bit. And then it, then it seemed to work again for a while. 
So yeah, I, I you can't see this really too easily, but when you look at the lens mount, there's this follower cam uh-huh. that go that it's kind of like the Nikon AI lever thing. On the earlier ones, they're metal, and on the later ones, oh, okay, they're plastic. It's a black tab on the later. Yeah, one, isn't it? yeah. yeah. So if you get the ones that are plastic, it, and it's not even just that piece. So like, I, it it would not be true to say. Well, if it's plastic, as long as it moves, it must be okay. I'm talking that in addition to that tab being different, internally, there's a lot of differences too, but that's the easiest way to spot an early. I mean, I'm sure a Minolta person could tell you other ways, but at a quick glance, you can tell if you have an earlier SRT by looking at that lever and see if it's metal. So I... You will almost certainly have problems if you get a plastic one. I think Wayne was holding up the actual viewfinder as a bit of a difference as well. Wayne, what, what were you showing there? The, the viewfinder that's itself an, got a difference as well? An XM, Minolta XM, XK. That's an XM. That's the pro one. X1. Yeah. The professional if you're going to get one. a black SR, an SRT. It also has a follower. I want already already overhauled. Like I bought an SRT 102 from John Tutterington off eBay years ago. It's a dream. I do agree that a properly working, these are very, very nice cameras. Uh, the CLC metering, I don't remember what that stands for, but they use twin meters that actually average out. It's contrast light compensation. There you go. At the time, one of the more advanced metering circuits, I mean, obviously other companies caught up and, and beat them too, but, um, you know, nice fully mechanical camera speeds one through 1000 focal plane shutter, bright visible viewfinder. Uh, you can see it's it's got sort of a display at the bottom, kind of like the knicker mats where you can see all the different shutter speeds at the bottom. Some of them have the little Judas window where you can see the aperture rings through the prism too. Not all of the models have that, but uh, it's a small investment, Paul, for you to stock up on SRTs and see if the value goes up on them because they're still pretty easy to find. I think I've actually got a half dozen of them on the shelf right now. The, yeah. the, the one that, the one that, oddly enough, the one that people want is the SRT MC which was the Kmart. The Kmart one. The yep. Focal. Because they, 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 they sold a lot of them, but not nearly as many as they sold the SRT 101 or 201 or, or even the two. Yeah, that was a Kmart exclusive. I got mine new when I was 12. To help you sell them, Paul, should we start a rumor now that Kim Kardashian's been using one or something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She used it. I think she uses a digicam. <laughs> yes, digicams. That's the new, the new in thing. So uh, she does not use one of those cool horsemen, though. Don't tell <laughs> anyone that. <laughs> um, we were talking about British cameras before. Um, actually, I haven't got this one properly set up, but I bought one of the Chroma snapshots. I don't know if anyone's used one of these. Um, it's sort of like a handheld four by five. Um, comes, yeah, you know, it comes with the ground glass at the back as well. But you're, you're probably better off using it as a, a range finder. Um, and basically it, it comes with a front where you can sort of mount the different lenses. I haven't got this one set up at the moment, but I've got, you know, I like to stick my Schneider lens on it. I haven't actually used it enough to sort of quite to say that it's a fantastic camera to use, but it seems really, you know, the few times I have used it is very nice to use, um, very plasticky. Obviously this is 3D printed, and but it's got one of the best made bellows I've seen for a while as well. So. Has anyone tried one of these before? They're definitely worthwhile. I'm thinking of actually getting the the Graflox Instax back for it to, to try it out. And uh, I believe you have to get some a little attachment, otherwise you end up breaking it. But uh, 
Uh, I'm not so sure now that hearing all the stories about how narrow the latitude of the instax is. There might be another issue, which is that the, the way that the, when you get the Lomograph lock back, the way it comes, it has a spacer that you are supposed to slide under the spring back of a typical old spring back camera to get the right distance to focus because the Lomograph lock back holds the film at a different distance than a graph lock film back does. Right. So you need that spacer. And if you don't have a spring back, you've got to like kludge something together because the spring back is really handy. That's one reason I like using the uh, super graphic because you can just slide the spacer in, focus, pull the spacer out, take the mirror off, put the, the Lomograph lock back on and shoot. It's a little awkward, but it's straightforward compared to you'd basically have to the best thing for you to do would be to actually mount ground glass on the spacer and at the right you know distance and so that you could just swap the two things instead of juggling i, I think i remember hearing that uh, the guy who actually makes those uh, chroma snapshots actually has a piece that that does that conversion for you yeah. to yeah. you know yeah, so that, there is a yeah. pre pre-made piece that does that that's true but but considering it's a 3d printed camera they're actually they're actually really good super light Four by five handheld. I mean, that's that's not a bad thing. It's laser cut, I think. Uh, some of his parts are laser cut, and some are three D printed. But he uses a very hard, precise ABS uh, plastic. So that's what this is made of. Same guy, Chroma Camera. Mm. Um, and he also uses a lot of uh, strong magnets. So these act this actually breaks down just by pulling it apart. The different layers can yeah. kind of just snap off. Like there's the film back, there's the body, and they it's just held together with magnets that are they're quite strong. I like the idea you actually um, tailor it for the lens you're using by using these spaces here at the front as well. And you can just sort of twist them off. And Yeah, they set the right infinity focus distance. Um, yeah. uh, and then you've got, and what is the actual focusing? Is there a helical on the front? It's a helicoid, right? Yeah, it's a helicoid, yeah. So, yeah. so once you've got the lens on there at the right distance, you, you focus by um, spinning the helicoid. And that, isn't that a standard M65 uh, Chinese type helicoid? I'm pretty sure it is. Probably is. I'm not sure. Yeah. But I mean, it works quite well. Obviously, you'd want to, um, if you're using a particular lens a lot, you might want to mark the actual distances on there as well. So that way, that Definitely. way you don't have to keep focusing through the ground glass. You can you can just set yeah. the distance. And I've done that a number of times. It's, it's not that hard. You'd take a nice sunny day, you set the camera on a tripod, you get a target to focus on, and then you use a measuring tape and you set it at the distances you want mm. to mark. Carefully focus, at, you know, with a lens pretty wide open, and then just m neatly mark it. And it is worth being fussy about it um, because then you have really nice markings to follow. Yeah. One of the other things I really appreciate on it too is it's got the um, the grip, which you don't get usually on a four by five camera. You usually have the leather strap, which on older cameras you. You're, you're kind of playing the lottery when you're holding it that way. But with this one, you've actually got a proper grip, which, which you know, for my size hands, at least anyway, the, the actual notches to, to put your fingers into work quite well. And then you put the, the remote cable in through the top there. So you're effectively got a uh, trigger button at the top with your thumb. See, Tilson, looks like you grabbed some stuff. What do you got there? Uh, so I've been, I've been getting very jealous listening to you guys talk about all this interesting cameras you've been. Uh, that horseman camera looks beautiful. I've, a, I've got a thing for only quite recently finding these old cameras from the 50s, 60s, some 70s uh, and later stuff as well and trying to put them back into use. I know a lot of people my age getting into film photography, mentioned like the Instax and the Fuji stuff. 
for this these party shots and hipsters following Kim Kardashian or whatever. But a lot of the cameras that they're after are broken. So uh, we mentioned earlier, someone mentioned about the OM10 with this little horrible manual aperture setter on the side. My, my collection, the, the stuff I've been repairing isn't quite as fancy as some of your guys got. But, uh, you, you know, it's, it's with people who are my age, around 20, 20 25 sort of era, we saw a lot more people are getting into this stuff. And uh, it's good to see, you know, podcasts like this reaching out to people on Spotify. And I'm noticing a lot of people getting really into the, the medium format, uh, a lot of art students and, and people on nights out. You, you see less phone cameras coming out and more, albeit that plastic, fantastic film cameras come out. But you do see some interesting stuff that people picked up of their parents. I, I've yet to see a, you know, a, a 1920s Kodak be whipped out in a night, nightclub, but uh, I look forward to the day I do. Oh, you can start that, Callum. Come on. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that would be interesting. <laughs> Tell them what are you shooting with personally? Are you shooting the OM10? Uh, yeah, I've just been to. Uh, I'm fortunate to be in a, to go to Venice last week. Uh, I took the OM10 with me, uh, partly because it's the only one I uh, I trust to <laughs> to uh, to work and get those valuable memories with. But uh, some some cameras have been. I, I've, I haven't shot a lot through them, but it's kind of a left of field suggestion. It's this little Canon. You all can see this. It's a SureShot Ace. Uh, again, not particularly attractive looking camera, uh, but it has got a really cool, quite unusual kind of a gimmick sort of thing going on with a waist level viewfinder on a, uh, you probably see my hand up here. Wow, it's I see it. A waist level on a 35 millimeter point and shoot that I've never seen before. That's yeah, a great, cool. great pub yeah. camera then. I've it's, never heard of that. It's one of the, the nights out cameras. You can get a photo of your friends in the worst moments. And, and they, they don't just... That was a cool camera. That was out at the same time the Owl was out, which has the, the huge viewfinder. Yeah. The, the, it was sort of a, that is thing. Neat. I've got a huge box here of stuff I've been sent to repair. And the, the, the wide, big viewfinders have become quite popular because they're so easy to use. You know, if, you, if you think of stuff like... Uh, even quite a popular one with young people, this Olympus XA, this is an XA3. The viewfinders on them are just pathetically small. You know, trying to shoot something through that is, is not really helpful. But oh, I've got the XA3. It's beautiful. I, lo I love using the XA3. The like, XAs are popular for all age groups. They have excellent optics. Uh, they, wonderful. Looking. I've really enjoyed working on this. And very repairable as well. Like you wouldn't think it, but... Uh, I cheated with the XA4, which is the wide angle version. So you don't really even need to use the viewfinder. You just set it for like hyperfocal distance and shoot from the hip. And it's got such a wide angle lens that it, it sort of eliminates the need to be squiggling through it. I've also got the original XA, which has the most useless viewfinder patch of any camera I have ever used. You know, you might as well just shoot it using scale focus because the patch and mine was like a, a mint camera. It's in great condition, but the, the patch is just horrible. Just out of interest, Anthony, what's the highest ISO that the XA4 would take? 1,000? I'll be right back. I'm going to guess 1,000. Yeah, I think yeah. it was 800 or 1,000. Yeah, because one of the advantages of the XA3 over the XA2 was that it would actually take 1,600 speed film, as um, which the XA2 was topped out at 800. So, Callum, what are some easy fixes on the XAs? I've heard the shutter release button it goes out pretty easily. Yeah, the, the this one, which is the, uh, the the button is it's not really like a physical button you like you'd expect with some other cameras. So people get them and they assume they're broken and they're stuck down. It's it's a very finely operated pressure one. 
Uh, luckily, you don't have to take the camera apart at all to fix that. Uh, you have to be a bit careful with what tools you use to get off. I went to my uh, local Starbucks and got a coffee stirrer, which I, I uh, shaved down into a little fork and you just lift them up. The, the glue with a bit of lighter fluid comes off real easy. You wow, that's very of... cool. That's a little orange red button that uh, it's, it's the pad, right? Mm. So you take those off and then you use a little, uh, you use a little coffee stir to, 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 to take it off. And then what do you need to do after that? It's, it's just a pressure, pressure switch. Usually it's a bit of glue that's become fragile and dry, suck stuff in, take them out. And usually, usually they, they work straight away after that. Cool. Uh, nice. Luna and a bit, of, bit of scrubbing. But, you know, you really need to be awake but not have any coffee because the, these stuff is so tiny that any shaky hands and you're not going to be able to repair them at all. But uh, that's something I've, uh, I've... Paul, you just found a mat that you were sharing with us that you use when you take things apart. Right. It's called a soldering mat. And uh, it's, it's actually flexible silicone. And uh, it is, it's extremely adhesive. So when you lay it down on something, it doesn't slide at all. It's very soft and it's, it's made to be heat resistant. So it was made, you know, for somebody to put a soldering iron down on. But the nice thing for me about it is when I drop a screw, it doesn't bounce. It doesn't bounce. Mm. Yep. It, it yep. just lays there. And uh, there are also all kinds of little holes and things that you can use to put them on. They were dirt cheap and it was $9 for a nine by 13 inch. Yeah. Uh, I have to pull them up. Thank you for the suggestion. Uh, so, so far, I've been using a, uh, a kitchen towel. Kitchen towel. Uh, so the screws don't bounce uh, as much. Right. Uh, well, the nice thing about these is that also you can, uh, it has some little trays. There are little individual compartments. Mm. And also a, a, a one that you could actually put them in sequence. So it had like 40 little holes and you would put them, the, the screws as you took them out, put them in the right mm. hole. So you know where to put them back in. But it was a, it was a cool thing. Uh, asking me to fix a camera is like asking a buffalo to fix your watch. So uh, it, it's, a, it's anything I can do to make it easier on myself, I try to do. For sure. Well, there's a lot of push with technology nowadays to, you know, right to repair sort of stuff going mm. on, especially with people talking about an iPhones. And I, I, I think in some of the, it's, it's, it's weird curve we've gone on. Some of the cameras from 60, 70 years ago kind of were repairable. We, we, something even as, uh, I think we've got a, uh, an, an Adixa, the one with the, the waist level viewfinder here. Beautiful camera, fairly straightforward to fix. If it goes wrong, it's not very difficult to fix. And we're moving on to some of the more modern stuff. In 2000s era, just designed to break. But now with the stuff that uh, some, some of you guys have been showing here, the 3D printed or the laser cut things, that does really interesting things. When they go wrong, someone's got that save file where an e a quick email to the, that, that folder in a laser cutter and you can repair pretty much anything immediately. So uh, I'm excited to see where this, you know, this new way of building cameras is going to be in, far of, in terms of like keeping them going. So you don't have to rely on <laughs> some some very dedicated person with, with a lathe somewhere making you a brand new part, which you can take it down to your local college, university and get one cut out for you. 
we've been, we've talked to Mark about this before about, you know, being able to have the different filaments and printing more and more precise and stronger parts. Cause sometimes Mm -hmm. you need, you need small and strong, which is the weak point for some of these. One of my favorite SLRs that's almost completely unusable today is the Minolta Dynax seven. It's, it's a beautiful early 2000s, I think maybe late 90s SLR, tons of features. It's got a really big LCD on the back door, like from a distance, it almost looks like a digital camera, but the LCD lets you set custom program exposure maps and all this other cool stuff. It's got a great viewfinder, but Minolta designed a plastic aperture coupling ring inside of the lens mount. And whatever the plastic material is, almost all of them, we've reached that point where they've all become brittle. And it, they crack. I mean, almost every one of these cameras you find, and I mean, they're only 25 years old about, but almost all of them are broken. And you yeah. turn the camera on and you immediately get an E on the display. And that's the problem is that that ring is just cracked, but they don't make the part anymore. But I, I have to imagine we are like on that cusp of people being able to 3D print like that part. Yeah. And that could then bring back some of those models that are almost completely crippled by today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because I've been testing out some uh, carbon fiber infused nylon filament in my printer. And I think you know, the bane of existence has always been the very thin parts that you need to have that strength on without it shattering. And with the newer nozzles and filaments coming out, I think it's getting more and more plausible that we'll be able to replace yeah. not just a large gear or something like that, but also like you're talking about like a, a fairly fine piece of engineering. That right. The, the previously has not been able to be done. I don't think we're, we're quite there yet, but we're very close. The resin printers do a, a much better job of that too. They're more expensive and they stink, but uh, I work in jewelry and we, we 3D print a lot of our wax models that then get cast into metal. And um, the, the 3D printed, uh, we had a printer for a while that would print plastics and that sort of thing. And you could then cure the plastics and they have special, special resins that are extremely durable. So um, I just you need to drop, you, yeah. you need to drop five or $6,000 for a, you know, a resin printer that'll do it, but making that file and printing that part is, is definitely doable. You just got to find somebody who's going to do it for you. Yeah. The, the prices come down a lot. The one I got was on Kickstarter. It was only a few hundred dollars and it's a DLP one, which means it'll last about 20,000 hours between having mm-hmm. to change things out. And it can also use some of those higher strength engineering resins. It, it's hard tweaking the settings to get it to work right. And, and mm-hmm. things like that, but it, there's a lot of promise there for sure. Yeah. We were using the, uh, the form labs three printer, which is a beautiful printer. Uh, unfortunately it didn't work for our jewelry pieces, but the, the plastic it printed out was just fantastic. So there's another level that we're going to get to pretty soon. There's someone who's developed a way to cast optical grade lenses. Mm. Um, and it's, yeah. it's a process, it's a centering method. But this is a really big deal, like not having to go through the grinding and polishing to make a high quality element for a, you know, for a compound lens. It's uh, it's something that'll come along and it'll really, really be a big change. Uh, that's a whole other, an all other realm, but imagine, you know, getting some, some numbers emailed to you and being able to just make a, a new formula. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So I, I wanted to mention for Calum that um, I, I've been learning to repair and, and adjust most. I love fifties cameras and into the sixties and they are easier to deal with. Um, but 
they're still very tiny parts. And so the two things that I depend on are, yes, that notice someone else holding up the, this is a particularly good version because it works over glasses uh, of a loop. The other thing though, is to go to- so Real old... quick, because for people listening, John Michael and Nick almost simultaneously held up the exact same pair of magnifying loops. And they go over the top of glasses as well. Yeah, that you wear, it wears, a, it has a headband, so it's hands-free and That's you can too flip funny. it up. You can flip it up and down so that you don't. You're both don't wearing them it, now. Flip it up, yeah. <laughs> and you know what? I get, I get this, I get this thing under the dark cloth and to see my uh, ground glass when I'm using a large format camera. It's too funny. It's, works really well. But I wanted to point out that you need to go to car boot sales and estate sales and look for really old jewelers screwdrivers because nothing made today comes close to these. Especially when you get to the super small size flatheads that you'll yeah. find inside a lot of old shutters and old cameras. These won't break, they won't strip the screw, and they have a swiveling uh, piece that you can press down hard. This is really important. Mm. You can press down hard and then rotate the screwdriver at the same time. And a lot of those tiny screws that are seized up in, in an old shutter or camera, this is the only way you're gonna get it apart without wrecking it. Um, and I've tried a, a lot of modern screwdrivers. They just don't come close. I got a uh, plastic bag of about 25 different ones of these at a you know yard sale from some old dude for five bucks. And wow, I've got the modern one, the, the swivel tips, and I, yeah. I was I'm underwhelmed by them to 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 put it lightly. Uh, yeah, you you really want the old ones. They're really yeah. well they're really well made. And also for Japanese cameras, you you definitely want to get a set of JIS tips. Otherwise, you'll strip them out uh, with just a regular Phillips tip. It will strip them out. I've got some uh, somewhere somewhere in the in the shop. <laughs> I've, I've forgotten where There's some of the Vessel brands with the rubber. Yes. Yeah. They're they're brilliant uh, and not that expensive. They don't break the bank really for what they are. So how did how did you start like learning or or teaching or what kind of resources do you use? Because I. I fixed cameras myself too, but sometimes I find it hard to find any resources or I took a, I, I replaced the the shutter curtain in my Canon P and um, that was, that was difficult to get deep into that. And there weren't a whole lot of resources to YouTube. YouTube. No, no, I looked. Yeah. Well, they don't, it's not, it's not invariable, but there yeah. are many people posting excellent, like, hmm. and the other thing is when you're doing your own work, take your phone and shoot every step of yeah, the way. Yeah, that's what and I not think. only is it useful for to help other people, but I can't find my way back out of the maze without <laughs> that. pictures. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, a really good YouTube channel. I just posted, he retired, Chris Sherlock uh, of Retina Rescue has an excellent channel. Now, obviously, if he doesn't have the camera that you're working on, it's not as helpful, but just to kind of get a feel for like his thought process of taking things apart, how to know where to look. Like I've done enough Japanese rangefinders before that they all come apart almost the same way. I mean, there are little differences here and there, but when I first got started, I would look at a top plate and I would have no idea how to get that off. But like now you just start to kind of, you know what to look for and perfect timing. I was sent this Vitesse T. This is the interchangeable lens version and it had a dead shutter. So I literally Googled Vitesse T shutter repair. The first hit was Chris Sherlock's YouTube channel and he had step by step on how to get this thing apart. And his videos are very long, very in-depth, 
but and I didn't even need to watch the whole thing. And I, he had just enough on there that I was able to get the whole front of the camera off. I was able to get to the back of the shutter and I just started cleaning without disassembling the whole thing. Uh, and I was able to get it firing and now it shoots at every speed properly. So, you know, you're getting started having a good mat, a good system for keeping track of your screws take a billion pictures with your smartphone, have a wide open area that's not cluttered, but also, or we talk about good screws, a good lens spanner is another good thing to have. And then my last tip, you can get these on Amazon. These are, um, these are little grippy things. These are actually made for removing lens elements. And yeah. a lot of times you get a camera here, it would work on this one here. I have to unscrew a, the front plate of the right. lens to be able to get to anything. Exactly. And those little grippers are yep. really helpful. Absolutely. So like a lot of times there are little, little notches that you could use a lens spanner that you use to attach it and it'll come off. But even if you have those not, some of them don't even have the notches, but even if they're there, I still like to start with the rubber gripper and you just kind of push it on there and rotate it and it'll just come right off. So having a set of these, and I only have three of them in front of me, but usually when you get a kit, there's like six of them. Having one of these rubber things, spanners, sockets, and the other things are, are definitely a good start. It's actually interesting how you mentioned the, the spanner on the front to get that uh, rather than the grip. Yeah, using the grippy things a lot better because even if you don't scratch the front element, you tend to scratch, scratch, the, ring. scratch the, the ring. So yep. it, it makes sense yeah. to use those rubber I always start with these first. And then if I absolutely can't, then I'll try and use a spanner. But the spanner is never my first choice. Yeah, there's something I certainly could have used with the this, the, the first camera I repaired. Uh, it was just had oil on the, on the shutter blades. And Konica? On an Auto S2. So Auto yeah. S2. Yep. To get this ring off and then to get the lens out, it unscrews. Yeah, that was some doing, but I, I fashioned one of my own, one of these these rubber things after seeing them on uh, on some of the some people who put it in the chat here. The Learn Camera Repair website uh, is uh, run and maintained by Eugene. Uh, it's a Facebook group and loads of manuals and instructions. And actually, a, a pretty good course that I, I'm currently working my way through. They, they said, you know, th these little cones are brilliant. And I, I fashioned one of my own out of a. I think it was like a plant pot stand <laughs> I cleaned up and it was gri grippy and rubber enough to get, get the lens out so you could get at the blades. So there's a series of books by Thomas Thomasy, and Absolutely. they're a little weird and frustrating, but they have a lot of useful information. They're good for general stuff. And then when the individual cameras come up, he talks like you've already done seven or eight of these cameras. And so they're a little frustrating to use, but they add clues to the, you know, the overall search for information i've seen these books there's two volumes is there or the i have two uh, volumes there might be more yeah they've gone up they're certainly pricey but uh I, i'm i'm keen to get my hands on them as soon as I, as soon as i find one for sale near me and one last tip callum is ask questions while these people are still alive you know uh, yeah. chris is an absolute awesome resource he just retired from taking on new work but i have personally and i've heard other people have to emailed him with a question and he'll respond back uh frank marshman has helped me with certain things but here's a couple things you can try you know the amount of knowledge that we are losing every time one of these old technicians passes away is uh is making the likelihood of many of these old cameras not working but seeing you you said you're 25 23 23. Okay. So we had Jess Ibarra. She's, 
you know, she's yeah. still pretty young too, you know, on the show. It's, it's, I mean, I, I had no idea you were going to be on the show. You were a, a spontaneous caller here. So I'm glad to have talked to you and hear about somebody that's younger. I mean, I'm 43, 43. Yeah. 43. So I mean, I'm still technically young too, but you know, just hearing that there's people wanting to not only shoot these cameras, but take them apart and try and get them working. I, is just really, really cool. Yeah. The, the episode, it was episode six, I think with Jessica Barr was the first one I listened to. When I, I, was, okay. I was like, I wonder if anyone else is doing this who's my age, because that'd be interesting to get through. Is yeah. hopefully get my friends and people similar my age to to start into this. So, you know, not just selling these these cameras that I fix yeah. up, but starting like a like a repair site to help people fix their own. Because you know, a lot of the times, do you have like an Etsy store or something? So a Depop store. Uh, so so far, I've uh, I've got a bad habit of fixing them, getting attached to them. <laughs> Boy, that never happens to any of us. No, no. You might get something out of a podcast I have done for three years called the Homemade Camera Podcast. Uh, some of our interviews are with people who know a lot more than we do. Cool. It's a little uneven, but there's some definitely some good stuff in there. The Homemade Camera Podcast, season. Yeah, Homemade Camera Podcast. We've sort of slowed down recently. We'll get going again. But the Early ones were very structured. I did them with a guy named Graham Young. And then we added Ethan Moses to the mix. And he's the, the guy from Camera Dactyl who makes really kind of goofy, exciting, uh, and strange cameras. He's done some really great work. Um, but he's he's more of an engineer, and he tends to go towards 3D printing and laser cutting. Um, I'm more of a Frankenstein. I like to take old cameras because they're wonderful and Break them apart and put them together in new in new ways. Oh, that's that's that's, that's really interesting. I'll, I'll check you. I'll check that podcast out. Mm-hmm. Uh, All right, Wayne, were you holding something up there? Yeah, I just I just picked up a a high medic, and I'm just cleaning. Okay, so I, I tend to repair some of my cameras. The high medic is actually very similar to the Kana yeah. S2, that full size Japanese mechanical rangefinder. That I is a ac- those are actually a perfect starting point if you want to learn like an Argus C3 is probably the easiest first camera to do, but beyond that, if you want something a little bit more advanced like a rangefinder, the Konica uh, Auto S2, the Ashika Electros, the Molta Hymatics, um a lot of the Olympus 35, the older ones are really good points to get started because they they have a design that's shared between a lot of different cameras. And, you know, there's going to be differences, of course, between them all, but there is still a lot that's very similar. And once you get the right tools, the, you know, your screwdrivers, your spanners, your working area, a way to keep track of your screws, that's a great start. So you guys are all to blame for this one. The Raleigh 35. Yeah. That, is not a, that is not a camera I would recommend you get started trying to fix yourself. This is, this is not a good one for starting, but um, what, what is the rating on this one? How many points? It's a one point, one and a half. I think there's some scuffs on the bottom. So okay, a, so one and a half on half scale. But the uh, the shutter blades were were oiled on this one. This one, there was a great video that went step by step, took it all apart, put it all back together. Unfortunately, you have to basically take almost everything apart to get to the shutter on this one. But yeah. um, the reason the camera is so quirky is because of how tightly everything's jam packed in there. Yeah. The thing is that that they do tend to hold up really well. I, I had one yeah. for a while. I really liked it. And the shutter speeds were perfectly accurate on it. Everything was perfect. Yeah. The the shutter, I mean, once, once the blades were clean, it works great. I had, yeah. I somehow, I put the, uh, there's a little there's a little gear for the uh, the ASA dial and I had that flipped so the meter wasn't reading correctly but that was then five minutes to flip that back the right way and that's fun yeah. I've opened up almost all of the cameras that I have and at least done something to them to uh, 
make them. So far, I've made them all better. The only one that I didn't make better was a Lubitel. You know what? If you can learn, you know what, though? If you can learn something from a failed repair, that's that's still positive, in my opinion. What not to do. But I just, I just failed to see how you could take a Lubitel apart and put it back together in any form and not have it be better than it was to start with. Well, well, that was that was the only, you know, when you start thinking about opening up a camera, you always imagine like some sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, cartoon thing where, you know, you unscrew one thing and then it just explodes into a big pile of screws and springs. What do you, what do you mean imagine? Well, that, that was the only camera that it did that with. You know, I, I pulled out one screw and it just went bing. And I was like, never mind you start out with a camera and turn it into a kit yeah yeah or you get it back together there's like five parts that aren't in there and it's like well what was that for yeah so theo i'm old and it took me forever to get to the vault and come back with my xa4 but i feel like nigel and spinal tap it goes to 1600 oh brilliant Brilliant. 1600 okay and that's that's really handy having that faster shutter speed especially if you you want to avoid using flash in uh, dark situations so we're running uh, uh, towards the end of time here real quick. So, so John, Michael, you said you bought that Raleigh 35 based on our previous discussion. Yeah. I'd, I'd had my eye on them for a while. Cause I've, I've got a couple of uh, the Rolex flex TLRs and I always liked them and it just seemed like a cool, a cool little point and shoot kind of camera. And I was shocked by how tiny it was when it actually yeah. showed up. Cause I was, you know, you see pictures of it and then it's like, Oh wow, it's really small. Is that the Tessar or Sonar version? It's the Tessar. The I got Tessar, it for okay. 30 euros. So I figured I can't oh, wow. go on with that. Hell yeah. That's a fantastic price. They're definitely worth more than that. But yeah, yeah. that's great. But um, just wanted to say thanks, everybody, uh, for coming on the show. Uh, we like doing these Euro-friendly time zone episodes every once in a while because, you know, when we record at the time we normally do, obviously it's the middle of the night. Uh, we love having new people who've never participated in the show before uh, come on just to kind of ask questions. You know, Callum, you know, wonderful meeting you. John Michael, wonderful meeting you. Wayne, I think we lost Wayne, but uh, uh, having some recurring people come back, having some new people come back, James Allen, it's really great seeing fresh faces. It's really great seeing returning faces, but uh, we have... I haven't finalized it yet, but I have what I think it's going to be a super awesome special guest for our next episode. Don't want to curse anything yet because I haven't finalized. We will be back Monday, May 2nd for our next episode, which will be episode 25. Obviously, it takes us a couple of days to get it published out there. We'll have this episode published later this week, too, for everybody to listen to. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Uh, It's a wonderful discussion. I look forward to um, hearing some more from you guys in future episodes. So have a good, uh, good, good night for those of you in England. Good morning for Theo. And good rest of the day for those of us in the U.S. It's beer 30 for us. Beer 30. Yeah, happy hour. Yeah, more coffee for me. <laughs> Go for it, Wayne. Yeah, Wayne's still got his Belgian beer still there. He's sipping it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, take it easy, everybody. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye, everyone. How do I turn this thing off? I've got 10 acres, and it had previously been cattle land, and we used to have cows. And I thought I should get dairy goats and make my own cheese. And then I visited with a cheesemaker and the guys looked at me and he goes, do you know what it's like to get up every morning to milk those goats, whether it's rain or shine or hurricane or snowing? <laughs>